All right, well, good evening, everyone. Um, good to see many of you here that don't aren't able to be here as often. Uh, it's really a wonderful gathering, and I know that maybe for some of you guys, this is the end of a uh, week of frolicking. Maybe for some of you guys, this is the beginnings of a week of frolicking, but whatever the case, as we come around the Word of God, and as we also come around one another, the Holy Spirit does many wonderful things to remind us of who He is, and also of His love for us, and also uses the Word to remind us of who we are. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to be looking at a passage from Revelation 13 that on some level, maybe we think, okay, well, this may not apply to us. Well, maybe that's how we've been taught or influenced to see the passage. But you're going to see actually from this passage, there's so much that is going on in our lives right now and in the world around us for which this passage speaks directly to in terms of how we should think, in terms of how we should act, and in terms of how our faith in Christ can deepen and should be anchored on something that will last which this world and all of its passing conflicts and issues and preferences never hardly ever do. And so let's go ahead and go ahead and begin with a prayer, and then we're going to jump into Revelation 3. Father, we thank you for today, and we thank you, Father, you are alive and working and active. You are on the throne that you are um, over everything that is happening in the world right now. And, and the more unsteady and unsure things may look from our point of view, from a human point of view, from a political point of view, Father, the more that we're reminded, God, that there is truly an ancient of days uh, who was and who is and who is to come. And this God that we worship here today has made himself available, has made himself known, and also has revealed himself and his character and his will and his plans for us in scripture. So we pray, Lord, that we would come today, that as we're confronted maybe in our thoughts and in our prayers and our burdens with all kinds of tribulation and hardship happening around us, uh, we pray, Lord, that we be mindful of who it is that we can put our trust in and that we should put our trust in, especially if our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Help us, God, to cling to that. Help us to find our identity in what is eternal, in the work and the sacrifice and the Lordship of your Son. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to be looking at Revelation 13, uh, 1 through 10. And the title for today's sermon is Don't Follow the Beast, but then also an S there, the plural beast. And you're going to see why as we go through this particular passage. Uh, I want to open up with um, this simple overview of the book of Revelation, which um, is always helpful for us to kind of find out where we are. Because a lot of times when we jump into a passage like this, we're going to get lost. Uh, and Gabe has just drawn up such an amazing diagram that I can't plug it enough every single time that I can. But our approach to teaching this book of Revelation it is not necessarily the only way, but it is a way that we see makes sense um, of many things. And so the way that we're teaching the book of Revelation uh, in the big picture is that this is a sequencing, this is a telescopic, this is a way by which with each particular aspect of the vision that proceeds out of scripture, it's narrowing down to a particular final point at the end. But along the way then, this is an encouragement for all of God's people. So then you find here references of bowls, you find references to trumpets, you find references to seals, all these things become magnified as you go into each series of them. And what you find in common is at the end of the sixth one, there's like a break. And that's a little bit where we're at today, too. We're in a section that's kind of like a major break before the ultimate thing happens. And we're going to learn a little bit more about kind of peeling back the layers of what is involved in the final scene of things. Uh, but that's how we're reading uh, this particular book and how we're teaching it. It's uh, different interpretations to it for sure in the book of Revelation, but this is how we've been approaching it. Then with each part, there's greater intensity. There's greater detail. It's like you're kind of coming closer with a microscope to see what is happening. And so that's kind of the approach that we're also seeing that there's more things being fleshed out, more than just, you know, that there's good versus evil. But what does good look like? 
What does evil look like? Who is in charge? Who is trying to be in charge? How is this war being escalated in the spiritual places, but then also how does it impact people on earth? And one thing that we have to be mindful of is that this book was written in the first century to a group of people. And we started the book by talking about seven letters to seven churches. There was a message that Christ had for each of these locations of local churches. And so there's a sense in which this book should matter to the people back then. And that's where then it matters to us now, that it's not only so far ahead that there's no relevance to us today, as if we're just waiting for some kind of time clock to kick in and then scripture matters. No, the way we're approaching Revelation is that this matters for all Christians for all time, but certainly there's an end time for which all these things fit. And then you see things unveil themselves and happen towards the final judgment, towards you know, the ends of everything and then lake the fire, um, you know, heavens and New York, all that kind of stuff. But from now until then, the gospels remind us, and really all of these just remind us that we are in the last days. We are, since the resurrection and the formation of the church, we are in the last days. And so there's a lot of motivation for us to be able to hold on to, to find hope in, especially in a world as tumultuous as ours. Um, oh, okay. Weird and cool. Okay, so I actually wanted to jump in to the beginning of this passage by looking at the end of this passage. So if you look at chapter 13, verse 10, here is actually the, the, the thread that I would say that is angled towards Christians of all time. That if you see this particular verse, you'll find that this is actually where we could hang our hooks to, and this is where we can get a lens and view of history from. In chapter 13, verse 10, um, this is written, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Why do you need to endure? Because there's hardship. Why do you need to exercise faith? Because there's falsehood and because there's evil and because there's confusion. So when you talk about the saints, these are the people that were set apart by God. These are people that are written in the Lamb's book of life. God's people, his children, each of us then are called for all time in wherever season that God has ordained for us to live in, to endure, and to exercise faith. And so then this particular obsession will drive us in that direction as well. How do we endure? And to the extent, why do we need to endure when you look at this particular set of circumstances that are going to take place and are taking place right now? And where and how do we exercise faith? Well, right before this, it's almost like uh, if you, you know, write a, a series of movies in, in the form of a trilogy, there's always a cliffhanger. It doesn't have to be a trilogy, but you get, you know, get around a series. There's always a cliffhanger. So right before this, at the end of chapter 12, you know, you find that there was this like cosmic warfare between the dragon, who is Satan, and the woman, right? And all of her people. So this is in chapter 12, and this is clearly pointing to God's people with the church. So there's this cosmic warfare happening. And at the end of chapter 12, this is what, this is kind of scene that is ahead of you. And he stood, this is the dragon, on the sand of the sea. So it's like he's on the edge, and the sea is like the symbol of uh, kind of a, this great unknown, uh, this messiness, this chaos, uh, this abyss. If you remember, you know, in the beginning, when everything was made in Genesis, right, there was the waters, but then the waters had to be kind of separated, and land had to be formed. The order came from what was just kind of a, a lot of water. Water in the Bible oftentimes then kind of points to this, uh, you know, this, this realm of chaos. And so you see this 
dragon who is at war against God and against God's people, he's now at the edge of the sea. And you can kind of imagine, okay, well, what's going to happen next? So that's where we go into in chapter 13. It all relates to what comes out of the sea. Okay? Because the dragon has a particular will and a particular desire to, to crush the people of God and to rebel against God, right? So what happens now? We're going to look at then what this chapter points to as beast number one. The reason why I'm saying that is because the second half of chapter 13 is beast number two. But beast number one comes out of the water. Beast number two comes from the earth. And, you know, that'll be talked about in the next sermon. But here's then what happens as the dragon is kind of at the edge of the sea, turning the corner then in chapter 13. From there, this takes place. I'll go ahead and start reading from verse one. And this first passage or this first segment I want to go to points us to who is the beast. Who is not the dragon, by the way. The beast is not the dragon, but the beast is connected to the dragon. Okay, so let's look at verse one here. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns and seven heads, with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Pretty funky looking thing that you find here. I mean, you probably would call it a beast. You, you, there's not a better way of, of calling it. Um, but when you're just looking at these like random maybe descriptions, you might be thinking, okay, that's weird. But it's not at all, because this directly links back to descriptions of evil figures and evil leaders, and especially as it relates to prophecy in the Old Testament that you find in the book of Daniel. These specific lists of things and items and descriptions actually are drawn from the book of Daniel. So a lot of what we're going to do today is going to be some comparing and contrasting when it comes to this piece, okay? So let's go ahead and look at Daniel chapter 7. And you're keeping in mind what we just read, right? There's the horns, the heads, the diadems, right? Leopard, bears, lions, this crazy bunch of mix of things. Let's look at Daniel chapter 7. This is verses 2 through 8. Daniel caught a vision as well. And so I'll go ahead and read it from there. The words that build this small for you, uh, feel free to look in your own Bibles. Uh, but either way, just kind of pay attention to the parallels here. So Revelation is drawn with the working knowledge of this vision in Daniel 2. God is the author of scripture. He is continuing what he has already inspired in the past. Okay, so chapter 7, verse 2. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, ah, the sea, and four great beasts came out from the sea, came up out of the sea, different from one another. Okay, so it's not this like weird uh, Voltron of beasts that are all stuck together. They're different beasts, okay? So we start learning about these beasts. Verse four, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up on the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth and three teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold, another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, 
It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had 10 horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Now, that vision is certainly confusing to the people at that time. And so later on in chapter 7, Daniel actually explains it. And I'll summarize for you what his explanation is of these four beasts. Okay, so he's pretty much saying that these four beasts are four kings of empires. And it probably started from Nebuchadnezzar, who at the time was contemporary with Daniel. But then you can go on to kind of trace that. Let's say it would go into the Greek empire, the Roman empire, right? Uh, the Persian empire. And you see these great empires that immediately in world history at that time, over hundreds of years, are able to fulfill this prophecy already. However, these were separate kings. These were separate nations and groups of people and empires. And that's a little bit different than what we find in Revelation 13. But you do see all the pieces, don't you? I mean, if you're familiar with this, the teaching of this vision or the hearing or the reading of this particular prophecy, you would think, okay, I see all the pieces. They're all the same pieces, but yet they're being remixed into this new person, this new leader, this new kingdom that is Revelation 13. And that's the point, is that this beast does have continuity because this beast is a part of the fulfillment of God working in human history and how he ultimately ordains not only ultimate glory and victory through his son, but then also where he, he, where he kills evil forever, where he ends evildoers and empires and bad men forever. This is all part of God's plan and intent, and that brings glory to himself. So let's go back now to Revelation 13. So let me go ahead and start reading from verse 3, and we're going to see a little bit more of who this beast is. One of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Well, we learn a few things. One is that this beast does not have power and authority of his own. This beast, or this empire, this nation, or this group of people, this power, derives their authority from the dragon, okay? You find something kind of interesting here, I mean, which you really can't miss, is that this beast apparently was injured in, in a life-taking way, but yet recovered from it. It's as if the beast was resurrected. It's as if the beast came back to life, okay? And then what happened? There was worship, worship given to the dragon through the beast, this beast that had come alive again. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And the reason why it sounds familiar is because this beast is an incarnate imposter. This beast almost resembles and looks like Christ in every way, who was sent by the Father, who did everything with his authority, who did everything to honor him, 
And even if we find this is the same writer here in the Gospel of John 14, 6, what did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for me. So who is Jesus in the grand plan of God's story? Well, he is the mediator. He is the savior. He is the bridge. He's the reconciler of sinners to God. You are reconciled and have relationship with God because of your faith in the Son and in the life that he gives. That's the truth incarnate Christ. The beast is a fake knockoff. The beast is an incarnate imposter. But notice this imposter is able to win quite a few people. There is just something about, you know, whatever it is that, that is, you know, seemingly just, you know, miraculous or trending or whatever it is at the time that just drives and moves and touches and mobilizes people. Movements begin that are not centered around Jesus. And so we've seen this in history all over. It's not that we read this and we think, oh, this is weird or surprising or how gullible can they be? No. This actually really points to us to the cycles of history doesn't it? That there's ups and downs of kingdoms, that there's ups and downs of celebrities, that there's ups and downs of trends, but yet people will always gather and hover and give up everything to be in the middle of whatever it is that is hip and cool and important at the time that they can't live without. And oftentimes that has nothing to do with Christ. But that's what the beast does. And the beast draws worship. The beast points people to greater allegiance and fake joy in the dragon instead of a true relationship, a lasting identity with the Heavenly Father. That's what Christ does. Now, as we're getting there, we find that you know it helps to, to see how this is portrayed in, in, in scriptures in terms of, is there just this one guy or are there people or empires or kingdoms or movements that can carry the spirit of the beast. And again, I want to point you to another passage that was written by the same apostle that wrote Revelation. First John chapter 2, verses 18 to 20. This is what he wrote there. Children, it is the last hour. So remember, even in the first century, it's already the last hour. Okay, so we're in the last days, but we've been in the last days. And as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. Okay, so there is an Antichrist coming, the Antichrist, the beast. However, he goes on to say, so now many Antichrists have come. Wait a minute. So there's more than one God, more than one movement, more than one kingdom, more than one leader. Yes, because being Antichrist is actually being anti-Christian. Not so much just one person is anti-Christ. You can have many people who are anti-Christian. You can have many types of leaders who are anti-Christian in a sense of pushing people away from God, having people indulge in superficial things that will not last, pursuing relationships and status and aspects of treasures in this world that they cannot take with them, that does not ever change them from the outside in, that does not go them any closer to their maker and their creator. So now many antichrists have come. This is even the first century. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us. So these are actual people who were in churches, who were in the midst of believers, but they were not of us. 
for they have been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. So there is and the Antichrist, but there will be many anti Christian people and movements and kingdoms that will come and go until Christ returns. That then kind of makes you think, okay, so how does that possibly fit into what is being described in Revelation 13? I mean, when you look at, let's say, if this is talking about a passage of empires or, uh, you know, subsequent leaders, right? You think of, you know, certain leaders, you think of like a Hitler, and you're like, oh yeah, that guy's pretty anti-Christian. But then you're living in a time like today, and you see, you know, someone like Putin, you're like, well, that's kind of anti, he's kind of anti-Christian too. Well, it fits, doesn't it? What does it look like when you have a mortal wound, and then all of a sudden, you're alive again? Well, if it's not the Antichrist, kingdoms come and fall. Leaders come and go. I don't think that at the end of World War I, Germany is thinking, hey, you know what? We're going to just start World War II. That wasn't how people thought. An empire died, but then a new regime rose. That's actually just pointing to the cycles of human history that people and movements and countries and empires will die even if they are truly evil and anti-Christian. No man, no woman could have that kind of power. Look at God in the face and survive. Everyone dies. But being anti-Christian and being against Christ and the gospel, that does not die until it's finally killed and thrown into a lake of fire with the dragon. That's just how things are. And that doesn't necessarily always, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily bring us encouragement because evil is evil. Evil is hurtful. Evil is scary. Uh, evil is seeing children being bombed and blown up. Uh, evil is uh, seeing children being aborted and torn up to pieces. Evil is a lot of things. So you never feel good in the presence of evil. You shouldn't because we were made as people of conscience, right? But I think it helps to know that evil doesn't have the last word. And that's what this passage points to us as well. Evil is not the end. We are not destined for eternity of absolute evil and chaos. We are not destined to be in the sea. We're destined to be with God face to face forever, where there's actually no sea, if you find in Revelation. That's a clear symbolic reference there. Well, so what does then this beast do? Okay, so this is where you can kind of see, okay, well, so what are movements of people that you can see are clearly anti-Christian in the sense of, you know, they exhibit these ways of being the beast. Okay, so I'll start reading from verse five. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth and uttered blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. So there's a threefold aspect to the beast. One, he blasphemes 
the name of God in a very proud way. That doesn't mean that he has to use religious language, but it does mean that if God is king, if God is deserving of worship, if God is deserving of our allegiance, and he's deserving of our lives, someone blaspheming against God would be, no, he doesn't. Live for this instead. Give your life for this cause instead. Follow me instead. Do what I tell you to do instead. That's the, that's the point of being haughty and proud and self-centered. So blasphemy against God is not so much he always has something bad to say about God, because you find many atheistic, non-Christian antichrists out there. So they're not using religious language all the time. But it's the fact that they're constantly telling their people and telling the world and people that they have influence over, forget about God. Let my will be done, not God's will be done. Forget about God's people. Forget about the scriptures. Forget about the church. Forget about making things right as a sinner. Forget about that. Just whatever it is that would make you do what I want you to do and enjoy this life as short and as brief as you have it. Live it up. Doesn't matter how you treat people. Doesn't matter how you walk with God. That is the blasphemy that comes with pride. So that's the first thing that he does. Second is that he exercises authority and rule. So there is a domain and a reign for which this beast and anyone in that mold has that there is influence and control over people and they make decisions okay, that impacts people. Um, and then finally they make war. And so when you see that beast, they blaspheme against God, that they rule over people and they make war, all of a sudden you can see that our history is just rife with tons of antichrist figures and that we're not that far away from the first century when John was writing, but that this is part of the human cycle of things. There is a specific target against God's people. And I think perhaps what you're seeing now, even in Ukraine, that makes it kind of unique is of all the countries that Russia is in attack, Ukraine is actually one that is probably more robustly Christian. We have relationships with colleges and seminaries over there as a denomination, as groups of Christians here. There's people that we support. Even my seminary is connected to a seminary out there. We who are SBC, we support lots of work and missions out there. So there's actually pastors and Christians that are being killed and persecuted and persevering in the middle of all of this anti-Christian activity um, because of the war. And we're seeing this happen right in front of us. It really made me reflect lately. You know, I, I wonder if history would have been the way that it is if we had this much technology as we had, let's say, I don't know, 70 years ago. If people, anything happened, we could just see it and we could track it, we could, you know, retweet it. Like things just kind of happen. People just die. People just went to fight, and governments went against governments, and pretty much you read newspapers. You never really knew or saw the devastation of war. But I think now, more and more, the reason why it's like such a big deal is because we see what it looks like in real time when these decisions are being made and people are you know, running for their lives. People are, by the millions, escaping to other countries, leaving every single thing that they had. You know, you're starting to know people you know, just through connections or just through you know, whatever popular in terms of just references, people that you can actually know and, and relate to in life. And they're caught in the midst of battle. You're like, wow, 
were so, on one hand, comfortable here in the United States, but on the other hand, man, this, this should matter, shouldn't it? Like, this should really sting our conscience, shouldn't it? When you see hurt and brokenness and evil and death. Um, but see, all of this is what people in the first century were living through. And so the call is for us, in that sense, to be mindful of the forces that are working in the world, but then ultimately who is in charge. So the last three verses help to, 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 to kind of break things down a little bit in terms of what do we have here in, term of, in terms of camps? So if we have the dragon using the beast to fight against God in his Christ, and there's people in the middle of all of this, and this is you know, throughout human history, where do we land? How should we respond? What are our decisions? What are our applications in life? Because this passage doesn't not mean something for us. It should mean something to us. Let me go ahead and read verse 8 through 10. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And that last part is what I read in the beginning. So you find there then there's two camps and what they choose to do and how they choose to respond to this beast who then points to the dragon as well as to the Christ who points to God is twofold. There's two directions here. There's two paths. There's two ways. There's two doors, two gates that people can walk through in terms of how they respond. Number one, they will worship the beast and everything that he says and does and promotes and pushes as being worthwhile and good in that particular worldview. Right? So it's not about God. It's not about uh, living for more than superficiality. It's not about loving neighbors and loving God as yourself. It's not about what you can do to be a blessing, how you can use your gifts and how you can be good stewards of everything that God's given to you. It's none of those things. Live, enjoy life, who cares about other people, be satisfied, live your truth, and just whatever happens happens. That's one group of people. Another group of people, that's the one that bad things may happen. So you find that here. Notice how this vision doesn't sugarcoat. What does it look like to be God's people written in the Lamb's Book of Life? They may persecute. Christians. They may jail Christians. They may muzzle Christians. They may do things to people that are followers of Christ that are not pleasant. And if you're looking at the first century, that's exactly what happened to Christians. But if you look at the course of every century, wherever there is, whether it's evil dictators or, you know, sinful um, movements of, of, of people against people or um, whatever it is that happens, Slavery, right? I mean, there's all kinds of things that's happened in human history, a lot of it in a very anti-Christian, anti-God spirit. Christians often are the ones that persevere to help bring about change. But then Christians are often the people then 
for those causes suffer and are martyred and give their lives to bring about those changes and to glorify God. So there's not a sugarcoating here. Hey, if you're going to be taken captive, you're going to be taken captive. If someone's going to kill you, you're going to die. That's pretty much what this says here. Okay, But there's a call for endurance and faith of the saints. Why is that then an encouragement? Why is verse 10 something that's supposed to all of a sudden change everything, all of a sudden you know, make you, you know, just live for God? Well, it's because the Bible makes it very clear that there is one who is in control of everything. There is one who is sovereign. There is a true king who is above them all. I want to take us to back to Daniel 7 again. This is the part that comes after the description of all those different four beasts and horns and everything else. He goes on in, in verse 9 of chapter 7. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. This is absolute holiness, righteousness, and power. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. And when books open at the end of days, by the ancients of days, when is the book of life? If your faith is in Christ, your name is in there. In fact, your name was in there before the, even the foundations of the world as it speaks of the Ephesians 1 as well. But as we're living through this life, how God's work in us is revealed and works itself out is actually through choosing to follow Christ and choosing to obey him, and even to the extent of being willing to suffer for his sake, because we cling first to our identity that God knows us. He knows our names. He wrote our names in a book, and that book can never be destroyed. It will never fall apart, and the ink will never fade. That's how John can see this vision and continue on and say, all of you who put their faith in Christ, persevere and continue to exercise faith in Christ. Those whose names are written in the book will be faithful through tribulation and hardship. And so may we find ourselves faithful. I want to share with you a quote by Danny Aiken. He's a seminary president and also an author. author. He said this, I believe Revelation 13 and the Bible's teaching on the Antichrist is not intended to provoke our speculation as to who he is. Rather, I think God's design is to instruct us now and in every generation concerning what Antichrists do and how they work as they are empowered and deployed by the dragon, Satan himself. The text seeks to enlighten us to the devices of the devil, the strategies of Satan. So that leads us to the big idea for today, and then I want to just wrap up with an application question for you. Here's the big idea. Followers of Jesus, whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, are called to endure and exercise faith in God in the midst of hardship and tribulation. And if you're thinking about how you can pray for especially our Christian brothers and sisters and pastors and missionaries in Ukraine, yes, pray for them to be delivered. Pray for 
Putin to back off. Pray for bombs to stop raining and pray for evil to stop raining as well. But regardless of that, regardless of the day-to-day -day affairs of a war and strategy and a battle plan, pray for them that this would be how they live. That because their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, that they may endure and put their faith in Christ. And there is a part of me that, you know, if we continue to kind of live this relatively here on the other side of the world, you know, relatively, uh, you know, comfortable life, I, I do hope, you know, that one day, you know, those of us who are in Christ, if we go to heaven, we get to, to meet brothers and sisters around the throne of Christ, that we would just have the opportunity to, to talk and know these brothers and sisters in particular. How amazing would that be? Um, how amazing would that be that as they've received crowns and rewards from God, that in the same way they would give those right back to Christ, but then we would be able to be in eternity together, praising the Lord and living for him. Here's the application question for you. How can believers have confidence in the midst of persecution that comes from the beast or anti-Christ beasts in our world? So you can go different ways in this question. Maybe you can spend some time going, hey, what, what are some of those anti-Christs in our culture and in our midst? You know, without it being, you know, kind of just being judgy, but just think about it. What, drive, what, what forces and people and influences drive you away from faith and endurance in Christ. There's so many. It's usually the little things, actually. It's not the huge things. It's the little things that move us, that make us drift away from this kind of endurance and faithfulness. So maybe you can talk about that. You could also talk about, well, you know, what are some of the ways in which we can be prayerful and we could stand up and we can endure in tangible ways in our life? So that would be addressing the question itself as a believer. How can you endure and put faith in Christ in specific applications? And then finally, some of you guys here maybe aren't even Christian. So you're reading this going, I don't get this beast, no beast, thing, you know, evil, good. What is this all about? This all seems kind of scary and like a big, you know, weird movie. Well, maybe it'd be great to be able to ask in your group about this Jesus that this revelation points to as being the Lamb of God that then John also points to as being the perfect Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That matters most, to know this Lamb and to trust in this Lamb and to be in the book of life that has this Lamb as the Redeemer. That's the most important, to ask those kind of questions. Hey, how, who is this Lamb? How can I know Christ? How can I follow him? What does it mean to endure? What does it mean to have faith? You know, I invite you guys to just raise those questions in your groups. And if you don't have the answers, if some people don't have answers, it's okay, because this is an ongoing journey. Part of what it looks like to endure and to exercise faith is sometimes for us to find faith in the first place, to be able to put our faith in something. And we're here so that you can put your faith in Christ, because we believe he truly is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, regardless of who attempts to lead or rule or make war or dominate people and culture and regions in this world, that there is a king who sits on the throne and we trust him.
right? Let me go ahead and pay for us, and then um, our response on, and then go into community time. Father, thank you so much for today, and thank you for reminding us Lord, that there will be an end, and that the dragon is not going to cease in raising enemies of the gospel and anti-Christian people of influences and movements. Father, that that's his role, that's his mission forever, to rob you of your glory, to take away from the glory of your son. But Father, we also know, God, that as people who put their faith in the Son, Lord, that you called us to endure and to continue to exercise faith in every season of our lives. So we pray, Lord, that you would be with us, God, as we come to meet with you and to respond to you in grace and to also engage the scripture and with each other in community groups. Remind us, Lord, of how much, Father, that you are different than the kings of this world. That the identity that can be found in you is drastically different than anything that we could earn or aim to achieve in this life by our own hands. Help us, God, to put our faith in Jesus, who lived a perfect life, died an unworthy death, so that he could be the perfect lamb that was slain. And we pray, Father, that each of us, above all things, look towards to that day when the book of life is opened. And that because of your kindness to us, that our names may be in there, and that we may rejoice with you forever. We do want to pray very specifically, Father, for the war that's happening in Ukraine. And we do pray, Father, for the perseverance of your people who are on the ground, the Christians and the pastors, women and children, missionaries, people that are needing to fly, flee and, and be refugees, people uh, just trying to fight and hold their own. We pray, Father, the gospel will be proclaimed through the words and the actions of followers of Jesus on the ground who put their trust in you. We also pray, Father, against evil, and we pray, Father, for you to withhold and to hold back, Father, the, the reign of somebody who is just aiming to accumulate power and worship for himself. And we pray, Father, for all those who are innocent, who are suffering, who are dying, God, that you would be their refuge and that we would be walking with them in prayer and in ways in which we constantly and daily reflect on how we can put our faith in Christ together. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us, and we pray, Father, that we would sing to you from the bottom of our hearts, for you are indeed the ancient of days who is worthy of our worship. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen.